So we have a, a paradigm for understanding uh, the Christian truth, and that is uh, creation. God created the heavens and the earth. Fall, man fell into sin. Redemption, in the fullness of time, God became a man and he lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins. And restoration. The God is in the process even now of changing those who know him by the power of the Holy Spirit. So creation, fall, redemption, restoration. There's an old person named John Owen in volume two of his book on communion with God said this, a design in Christ shines out from his bosom that was lodged there from eternity to recover, recover, things that shall be exceedingly for the advantage of his glory and the good of his people, for the glorification of God and the well-being of his people. So we're in the process of being people who are reoriented and directed and changed by the Holy Spirit as we see the beauty of the reality of the gospel that shines out of the person of Christ. Solomon in Ecclesiastes saw the gospel dimly. The sacrificial system foresignified the coming of Christ, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. So, so Solomon saw that dimly. But in 1 Kings 11, he married many foreign women, and they turned his heart away from the living God. And Solomon, the scripture says, did evil in the sight of God. He, he turned away from the living God, and he walked away from his faith. He walked away from the coming glory of the gospel. And so he writes the book of Ecclesiastes as a bitter man who is living life only under the sun. And the under the sun element is a man who is pursuing pleasure as his goal in life in a socially acceptable fashion and who has, because he's embraced all the gods of all of his various wives, he's come to the point of saying God is, but he's undefinable. There is a God and he exists, but he's undefinable. I would suggest to you that is the world we're living in. We're living in a world where people are about the seeking of pleasure, usually in a socially acceptable fashion, and they are saying God probably is, but we can't define him. It's become very popular in these days, if you do any study, that people will say something like this, I am a spiritual person, but I'm not religious. And by that they mean, I, I, I'm not involved in any organized religion. I don't want to give any definition to God or spirituality, but I want to kind of experience the harmonic reality of God in creation. In fact, there's even a designation here. It's, it's the SBNA, spiritually people who are non-affiliated, non-affiliated. So they, they, they want to find God. So that's where Solomon is. Uh, he's an Epicurean who says, I believe in God, but that kind of be defined. And so he goes on this quest that we, he's outlines the book of Ecclesiastes. And the first thing, we're just four different roads before we get to the text today. Four roads he took. The first road is the road where he sought wisdom as the ultimate fulfillment of his life. And he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 13, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. It's an unhappy business. 
He said it's, 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 it's vanity is like trying to catch hold of the wind. And he comes to this conclusion. Chapter 1, verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge only increases sorrow. So wisdom doesn't work. He says, well, I'll go the pleasure route. And so chapter two is about pleasure. He said, I said, I will fill my heart with pleasure. And I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Verse three and verse four, I made great works and I built houses and I planted vineyards. And I had all types of men and women who were at my beck and call. I had many concubines, 300. And so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. But it says the end result of this is found in chapter 2 and verse 11, where it says, Behold, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended, in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So, so pleasure didn't work. He says, well, I'll, I'll try another route. I'll go the route of labor. Labor is wonderful. Jobs are wonderful. Labor is a gift from God. So he said, I, I, I went out and I worked and I labored and, and I did that. And then this was the end result of labor. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? It makes no difference. Then the fourth path I'll mention, the last one is pleasure. This will tied up in wealth. Chapter 5, verse 10, he who loves money will never be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? And the end result of the pursuit of labor is this. Chapter 5, verse 16. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he who came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and in sickness and in anger. So, so he's tried these paths, whether it's the path of wisdom or pleasure or labor or wealth. And he says, yeah, doesn't work. Doesn't work. And so he's operating under the sun. And this morning we're going to deal in chapters 8 and 9 with the puzzling questions that he's asking under the sun. Here's my thesis. That if you live life only under the sun, there's no supernatural orientation, but it's, it's only under the sun. You cannot answer the big questions in life. The big questions he addresses are, what about injustice? Are there parameters or a grid for knowing things and knowledge? And what about death? Three big questions. Injustice, knowledge, and death. So I'm going to tell you a story, and it's got a point. It's a joke. So um, there was a man who played football for Mississippi years ago named Archie Manning. Now, you know him probably because his two boys are Peyton and Eli Manning. The man's are called the first family of American football. But uh, Archie played at Ole Miss and uh, was, so in 1969, it's hard to believe, was the first telecast of a primetime college football game on Saturday night by ABC. First time ever, 1969. And they telecast Ole Miss playing Alabama. 
And in that nationwide game, Archie Manning threw for 475 yards and ran for 110 yards. And they lost 33-32 to to, to Alabama. But, but Archie Manning's name became a household word. And so Archie Manning from that point forward was known throughout America. But he was loved in Mississippi. And he, he was a wonderful man. He is a wonderful man. But the story goes, and it is a make-believe story, that early one morning in Oxford, Mississippi, a seventh grader delivering newspapers was going across a bridge. And there was a man standing on the bridge who was inebriated, been drinking all night. And he's swaying in the wind. And the young man says, Mr. What are you going to do? He says, I'm going to end it all. The boy says, sir, don't do that. He's a seventh grader. He says, why? He says, well, what about your wife? And he says, my wife left me for another man. He said, what about your kids? He says, my kids can't stand me. I've been a terrible dad. What about God? I don't believe in God. What about Archie? He said, Archie who? And the little boy said, jump. <laughs> now, the, 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 the point to the story, and there is a point, is, is just this. If, if you don't understand the nature of God, forget the last line, the nature of God and the character of God, you cannot answer the big questions of life. So this is kind of an apologetic seminar this morning, a defense of the faith or thinking through the faith. You, you cannot understand the character of God. So these puzzling questions, we're just going to hit them as we go through chapters 8 and 9. The first is injustice. What about injustice? Chapter 8, verse 14 says, there is a vanity, a smoke and mist, that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I said, this also is vanity. In other words, he says that there, there are people who are, who are trying hard and they get sucker punched. And there are people living without any concept of honoring their neighbor or caring for people. And, and they seem to get the good things in life. He says, what is going on? He says, what do you do with the injustices of life? I'm going to give you a few examples. So right now we have this group, this human caravan coming to our southern border. And I'm not, I'm not arguing for open borders. I don't believe in open borders. But... When you understand the, 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 the dire, horrendous realities of their nations, you empathize with them. Year, months ago, there was an article, I set it aside, about Latin America is now the murder capital of the world. There's Latin America. Latin America, the murder capital of the world. Um, 8% of the population lives in Latin America. 33% of the murders happen in Latin America. Every day in Latin America or South America, where there are more than 400 people murdered every day. This, this astounds me. This is a little graph. This is a graph of, um, on the right is the city of Acapulco, Mexico. Acapulco years ago was the vacation destiny for all the rich and the famous. It's a city of about 800,000 people. But it's turned into a wasteland. So Acapulco last year had, in, in this one city, 953 people murdered. That is more than all the murders that took place in Italy, Spain, Switzerland, Portugal, and the Netherlands, or 143 million people. Just think about that. It's amazing. El Salvador is the murder capital of the world. 
El Salvador. Brazil with a population of 208 million. We have 326, 27 million in the United States. Brazil last year had 64,000 people murdered. The U.S. had 17,000. Just think about that. Over four times the murder rate. And, and, and you, you read about that and your heart breaks. Right now, the top of, of all the cities in the world, 43 of the 50 most murderous cities in the world are in South America, the top 10 South America. We have one city in the top uh, 25, St. Louis, number 19. Hear this. Between 2000 and 2017, 2.5 million people were murdered in Latin America and the Caribbean Basin. 2.5 million. In all the wars in Syria and Iraq and Iran, 900,000 people were killed. Now think about that. So 2.5 million to 900,000. So, so, so the, the, the horror, of it, and, I, and I step back and I say, what about this? If this is just, the injustice is overwhelming. Here's my example. This is my example, if you can blow it off where you want to. I was talking to some people this week about systemic issues in our own country where certain people just cannot seem to get an upper foot. And I said, but, but really, if you live in the United States of America, which is the land of opportunity, I love this country. A land of opportunity, of economic viability, unemployment rate is less than 4%. I'm going to go to Tunisia in a few months. Unemployment in Tunisia is almost 55% among men. They can't get jobs. So, so you, this is a land of economic viability. If you're raised outside the Christian faith, forget the Christian faith, you're raised in a home and you have a mom and a dad or you have a family unit that teaches you social grace and etiquette and they make sure you know how to read and you get to school and they teach you responsibility, if that's the way you're raised, then, then basically they have put your hand on the doorknob of opportunity and you need to turn the doorknob and walk through. You've got to turn the doorknob and walk through. But, but it's there. Do you understand that? These people in these countries can't even find the door. So when I hear people berating America and this and America, I say, you know, either they've never traveled, they've never read about international news, and they've never studied history. Because this is a land of opportunity, and we're blessed, and we should be a blessing to the world, especially the church. And that's why even this week we have some of our elders going to Jordan to examine how we can start schools for Syrian refugees so they can hear the gospel and learn to read. That's what we're doing. That, that's, that's what we're about. So the, the justice. The second example is this, a Yemen. And I was made aware of this just a few weeks ago because you hear about Syria, but a couple in our church who were serving in the Middle East said, really, the horror story is Yemen. Yemen's a country of 28 million people on the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula. Yemen right now, there is ongoing civil war between the, the Shia, who is supported by Saudi Arabia, and the Sunni, who is supported by Iran. And they're killing each other. And it's been going on. The economy has crashed. People can't get food. There are 1.2 million people, mostly children, with cholera. Their kids today in Yemen dying because of diarrhea. Last year, the Center for Disease Control said there's, they thought there's one person in this country that died of, of cholera. 1.2 million. And, and, and there's no food, there's no clean water. Just, my heart cries out, justice? 
Last example, Nigeria. Nigeria here in Africa. Nigeria is a country of 200 million people. One of the key countries of the future. Maybe the key country of Africa. Right now, Nigeria has 50% Christian background, 40% Muslim, 10% tribal. But there's a group in Nigeria, especially in the northern part of Nigeria, named Boko Haram, which means Western learning is prohibited, who are systematically killing Christians. And I picked up, I was thinking about this issue, picked up the Wall Street Journal on Friday, and there's an article here by a, by a journalist who's also an Anglican uh, pastor, and he talked about the horror of Nigeria today. He says, today, since the year 2009, when Boko Haram began its rampage, 20,000 Nigerians have been hacked to death with machetes. 20,000. Two million have been displaced. Pastors and their families have been specifically targeted for death. He says, I just found out there's a $700 bounty been put on my head because I'm a Christian leader. $700. If you can kill this guy, we'll give you $700. And so he says that because of this desperate situation, he says, I have organized uh, apologetic seminars for pastors all over Nigeria. And we meet secretly. He says, we can't advertise, so we'll text all these pastors and we'll say the seminar starts in one hour. It's going to last for seven hours. They can't, because if we advertise, somebody will infiltrate and report us or they'll rush in and they'll kill us. Think about that. And it says this is a jihad against Christians. Pastors in the northern part of central and central Nigeria face daunting pressures. Some conduct funerals almost every week for victims, often in mass burials. They struggle to answer their parishioners' questions about God's love and justice. And they hear powerful voices dismiss this as an ethnic clash, but understand it is a strategic scorched earth policy against the Christian faith. But it says at these seminars, I'll leave two more paragraphs. At these seminars, we take five approaches to talk about God and evil. Listen, this is incredible. First, we explain that God made us free to love or to hate. Second, life does not end on this earth. There is a heaven and a hell. Third, God is just. Someday there will be a judgment and no evildoer will get away with the evil he has done. Fourth, God is love. That can be hard to believe in evil times unless you look at Jesus' cross. There God himself suffered at the hands of evil men and because of it, love was released for the whole world to see. Fifth, we listen to testimonies of pastors and other Christians who saw the manifest presence of God in the midst of suffering and were transformed by it. I read that and I go, wow. Wow. So, so, so somebody says, what about injustice? My, my answer, as I have scripture, is we live in a wonderful world that's gone bad. There is sin in every heart. There's sin in every culture. And sin unchecked can explode. The Pandora's box was not open in Greek mythology by Pandora. Pandora's box was open in the Garden of Eden when the first man and woman fell into sin. And we have all received that sin heritage. The second thing I would say is that even though we live in a good world gone bad, there will be a day of judgment when God, who is the righteous judge, will repay people for the life they've lived. 
And, and therefore, we walk with, in a world that has injustice, knowing that God is God and God will judge. And that's, that's difficult, but that's the biblical answer. But what's, what, what is Solomon's answer? <laughs> Listen to Solomon's answer. Verse 15, this is another translation. So, so I recommend having fun because there's nothing better for people in this world than to eat and drink and enjoy life. That way they will experience some happiness along with the hard work God gives them to do while they are under the sun. Solomon's whole thing is, yeah, hey, hey, in resignation he says, hey, just have fun. Just, just have fun. You're going to go through life. Life is going to be hard. Have fun. And he says that I believe with resignation. How about knowledge? Verses 16 to 17, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth and how neither day or night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So three times in one verse, verse 17, he says, man cannot find it out. He will not find it out. Man cannot find it out. And Solomon says, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I can't answer these big questions. I can't answer the, the parameters and how to have true knowledge and because he's walked away from the living God. Now, this is a jigsaw puzzle, okay? If you ever come to see me and you walk in and the person, uh, is the man of the house is sitting there doing a jigsaw puzzle, realize you are in the wrong house. I, I just can't do jigsaw puzzles. I don't have the patience. In fact, somebody said to me, you can live in Hawaii, but you've got to do jigsaw puzzles six hours a day, or you can live in Newark, New Jersey, next to an industrial place, I'm going to Newark. I'm telling you, I'm not going to. So jigsaw, some of you love jigsaw puzzles, which is, I think, wonderful. That shows that you have patience and you may be boring, okay? So this is a jigsaw puzzle. It's a thousand pieces, a thousand pieces. It's a Looney Tunes jigsaw puzzle, Looney Tunes. Without a biblical grid to life, it's like somebody threw a thousand pieces on the table and said, get after it. You see that? Get after it. I, I believe that. Under the sun living, get after it. But the scripture, see, the scripture gives us a paradigm to walk under. We can answer the big question. So, so we, we say, you know, what, about, what, what about knowledge? We say, well, example. Uh, people say, what is mankind? Uh, what is mankind? Well, under the sun, people say, well, mankind is, John Paul Sartre, a useless passion. Solomon says here, mankind, just, just have fun. Just have fun. Others say, well, mankind is a, is a mistake. Uh, it's kind of a mistake. Or is the impersonal plus time plus chance? Well, what do we say? Walking under the grid. Mankind, male and female, are made in the image of God. 
Therefore, they're able to express beauty and truth and have relationship, to think. And they're worthy of respect and Christian love. There are no inconsequential people. I don't care if the child is a special needs child, whatever. People have dignity. And, and go on to say in this day and age, and gender is part of the goodness of God's creation. I, and this whole thing about the LGBTQ movement and people transitioning and not knowing if they're male or female, despite their physiology. Uh, if you're under the sun only person, you say, well, how can I possibly look at people and say, I know you look like a man, but you may not be him. I mean, it's so confusing to me, but if, if you come at it, I can't define, I can't define maleness. I can't define femaleness. I can't define what it means to be a man or a woman. Then anything goes, but we say, no, 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 no. God made us male and female and said, it's very good. That, therefore, see, supposition. Therefore, gender is part of the goodness of God's creation. Right about the purpose of man, okay? Under the, under, the, under the sun, people say, well, the purpose of man, we're going in the path of wisdom or pleasure or toil or, or riches, or we'll try to find meaning in something else. And we say, no, men are made to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. That's it. To live out the reality and, and to walk in dignity and beauty and to love others. And that's why one of my favorite verses is in Proverbs 4, and it's so true, and I've seen it happen time after time. It says, the, the, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Romans 1.32, not only do they deny God, but they give hearty approval to those who deny the reality of God. I've seen it time after time after time. I've seen incredibly bright people, much smarter than, than me, say, no, I don't know what the purpose of man is. I don't know about maleness or females. And I remember years ago, I think I was a seventh or eighth grader. I think I was an eighth grader going to high school. I had a summer job of, of clearing several, 30, 40 acres of, of trees and stumps. And there's some of us working on that, and it became a large uh, factory that has brought thousands of jobs to my little community. And so I was assigned to work with uh, a man who was an old farmer who always had spittle coming here, tobacco juice, and he always had a three-day beard, and he wore a baseball cap and bib overalls. I have no idea how old he was. His age was a great question to me. I was a young guy, of course, and so we're out there working, and we worked hard, and he was a hard worker. And he never, he very rarely said anything, but I remember two things he said the whole summer. We're out one day, and we're taking a break, and, and he looked up in the sky, and he said, you know, Buster, I've come to believe that if I could accept the first verse of the Bible, life just falls into place. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And I was 14, it just went, you know, didn't really impact me. I remember that. Here's a guy, third grade education at best, I would guess. That's my granddaddy, third grade education. So third grade education at best, who, who just put it together. The other thing he told me is one day we were having lunch and he looked at me and said, have you ever had, have you ever had deep fried possum? And I said, No. He said, it's pretty good, I thought. Take your word for it. I never did that. So, so that's, that's what he told me. But I mean, but yeah, see, 
puts things together. The third major area is death. This is what it says about death. Chapter two, chapter nine, verse two says, it is the same for all. The same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and unclean, to the one who sacrifices, the one who does not. Verse three, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after they go to the dead, for he who is joined with the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. He says, he says, you know, this is a great evil under the sun. The same event happens to all the people that live on the earth. They all die. The same event happens. It's very fashionable years ago, I'm not sure it still is, to have a, a, a life verse. Somebody says, do you have a life verse? Says, yeah, come up with a life verse, you know, and you're supposed to expound on it. So that's what you do at some of these Christian camps. If you really want to mess with somebody's mind, they say, what is your life verse? My life verse is Ecclesiastes 9, verse 4. A living dog is better than a dead lion. Don't mess with them. Just kind of, just kind of walk off that. Well, what Solomon is saying is that a living dog that's a scavenger is better than a majestic dead lion. But he says, when I try to consider life and death, it's, it's, it's just beyond me. You know, one thing that torments Solomon in this book, if you read it, there's four times, three or four times, he says this, he says, nobody remembers when you're dead. Nobody, he says, Solomon's sitting back and he's looking at all that he's done, all he's accomplished. And what torments him is this, he says, when I die, somebody will take my place and nobody will remember that I even breathed. In other words, man really has no consequence. I'm the king of Judah, and nobody's going to remember me. And so what do we say to that? Well, we say 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my brothers, because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of the life-giving power of Christ, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is never in vain. Now, what you do for Christ counts for eternity. That's what the Bible says. A seven-year-old that teaches vacation Bible school, it counts. Or a 75-year-old that's in a correspondence course with prisoners that shares the gospel with them, man, that counts. People that live in the culture, whether it's auto mechanics or law or homemaking or teaching or medicine, it counts when you do in the name of Jesus. So we just say, in God's economy, it counts. Life is significant. You're significant. Your decisions are significant. You see, see, I want to do this real quickly. What we need to do is, is we need to understand life lived above the sun. And it's a struggle. Psalm 73 is a psalm we should meditate on frequently. And I'll close with this. Psalm 73, the thesis, the conclusion is verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But, 
As for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he overstates it, but this is where his mind is. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. In other words, they're well-fed. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through their well-fed face. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. And then he says this. I felt this way. In vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. But when I thought, verse 16, how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, listen, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. You set them, O Lord, in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. They're destroyed in a moment. Hmm. Then he says, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing upon the earth. My flesh and my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge. You know, these hard questions are hard questions. Hard questions about injustice, the grid for knowledge, and death. But the scripture gives us the answer. A place to stand. So as you dialogue with people, you know, think about this. How do I talk about this? How do I bring the reality of Christ to bear in this conversation? May God use us. Please, God, use us. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for this day and uh, the ability to read the Bible, the ability to meet without texting just an hour before saying we're going to meet at this place at this hour. We're thankful that we live in a land of opportunity where we're not boiling uh, grass to eat it as a means of our only sustenance like they're doing in Yemen where cholera is basically unheard of. We're, we're, we're thankful for the gift of being protected by people in authority and police instead of being subjugated to bribes like happens in Honduras and El Salvador and Venezuela. We do not take these things for granted, but most especially we thank you that there is a living God who watches over us, who's our shepherd king. We thank you that we can look at life with all of its difficulties and all of its ups and downs and all of its questions, and we have a mental grid called the Scripture by the power of the Spirit to walk under. We thank you that we can stand on the de at the deathbed of a loved one or at the grave of a loved one who knows Jesus, and we can say, Oh, death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. For these things, we thank you. Lord, thank you that we can answer the big questions. That doesn't take away the pain, but it helps us answer. Thank you that our answer is more than Solomon's, which is, hey, just have fun. Just have fun. 
during these few miserable days you have left. Thank you that eternity awaits. So good, so good. So we bless you this day in Jesus' name. Amen.